0: This is an Area Code podcast.
1: You're listening to The Table of Malcontents, where Aaron Armstrong and Dave Schrader talk about the books they love and a few they really don't to help you be a better reader. (laughs) Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for today's episode of Table of Malcontents. I'm Aaron, and with me as always is Dave. Dave, how's it going? Dude, it's, it's about to be springtime. I'm uh,
2: I I'm back to my bad slash awesome habit of sunflower seeds. Well, just don't and do them on, on Mike, okay? I'm not gonna do them on mic, cool. but I'm happy. I mean, I'm that guy, I'm like, they probably think I'm like dipping here at work right now. It's just sunflower seeds. <laughs> There's something about the spring that says it's time to break out some sunflower seeds. And uh, yeah, so there you go. I'm you happy, go. Well, I'm good. I'm good I, I i always have to be now this is the same thing when it comes to reading like everyone like you know kids fidget spinners were all the rage a few years ago right well my fidget spinner if i if i'm not gonna like bite my nails is gonna be something like that i chew gum a ton also doesn't work well for podcasts apparently so i'm told uh that's but, true uh,
0: smoke cigarettes
1: yeah that's a great point
2: yeah yeah
0: that's a great way to quit biting your nails yeah. Okay. So I should take up smoking. smoking. That's what I need to do.
1: Yeah.
0: Nice. Okay.
1: All right. I'll tell my wife and she'll tell me no. I but... quit
0: smoking by biting my nails. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Pete, well, that's,
1: that's a perfect cold opening for you. <laughs> that may be the
2: episode title. The episode that'll help you either start smoking or biting your nails. Depends which one you want to get rid of.
0: I really do have a great story about how I quit smoking. If you want to hear it sometime. Oh, oh no, definitely. just go right just go right into it. Then I'll yes. explain who you are to everyone. How about <laughs> okay. That? I, all right. I like Perfect. All right. Well, I, I when I was a young man in my twenties, I smoked for I don't know, maybe five, seven years, something like that. And uh eventually became the guy that just smoked like a pack a day and just hated myself for it. Like there was just ashtrays everywhere. I was always running to the store to get a pack, hated myself, kept trying to quit, kept trying to quit, couldn't do it. And, uh, so finally I was sitting there one day and I, I was tempted to smoke a cigarette and I was just, I wanted it so bad. And I said, God, if I ever touch tobacco again, send me to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I have never touched another cigarette, like whatever, wow. for whatever reason that flipped the thing in my brain. And I know that has, that has no theological basis. Like there, it's completely ridiculous. But I will say that like, it wasn't a, but a few months later that uh, my brother and my dad really got into pipe smoking. And I was like, oh, well, I can get on on that. And then I, I thought, I was like, wait a minute. I didn't say cigarettes. I said he could send me to hell if I touched tobacco. Dang it. So I don't smoke a pipe. I don't do anything to this day. Man, I, bet
2: everyone is, I, bet, I bet everyone assumes that you do, considering the old brand of rabbit room and so on. <laughs>
0: everybody definitely assumes that I do. Yes. It's yeah. not cigarettes. Yeah. 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 It's been that's over funny. 20 years now. And uh, like, yeah, I don't, I haven't, I haven't even been tempted. Oh, that's, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah, Pete weird. was it,
2: was this when you were in the Marines when you smoked?
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay.
2: It was some of that, just the culture, just the fact of, you know, downtime. You what
0: was, exactly what it was. I'd had no intention of starting smoking, but when I was in the core right away, I got stuck on ships in the Pacific. And when you're a Marine on, on a ship, you actually do nothing. Like you're just on a ship, it's your taxi and you're being taken somewhere. So you, you can spend three months just on a ship sleeping and eating. And the only other thing to do is go to the smoking area. <laughs> and so that's how I started smoking. I was like, I'm so bored of eating, drinking, and playing cards. I'm at least gonna walk you know, to the smoking area on the ship and, and smoke there with everybody else. So anyway, that's where I picked it up and it took me, I don't know, seven or eight years to kick it, I guess.
2: Uh, So you were, you were out of the, uh, out of the core at that point. I know you're always a Marine, right? I get reminded that often. You're always a Marine, but you were out of full-time
0: core. Yeah, that's what they tell me. But I was out of the core when I finally kicked it and I'm so glad I did.
2: (laughs) Good grief, man. All right. So we just went right at it, uh, Pete. So because, I, I was, I know I bring up the Marines often with you because I, I just think it's fascinating because I bet whenever you tell people that they're like, no, how could, how could Pete Peterson be? A, how was how he a Marine? You know, I
0: actually feel like their reaction is, oh, of course he was that explains so much. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, you have to have a certain mentality to do what you do today. And I can imagine there's got to be some things you've learned from the Marines. So,
0: uh, Well, interestingly, I, when I was in the Corps, I was uh, basically an air traffic controller. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I talked to airplanes and told them where to go and coordinated helo drops and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it fits the the cliche of air traffic controllers being like the highest stress job you can have. Yeah. So like from an early age, like I was multitasking and, and did it really well and enjoyed it. So it makes yeah. sense that, you know, 20, 25 years later, I find myself running like 18 things at one time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, Even our convers this leads into even our conversation last week, I thought, gosh, Pete, you're doing all these things. Can't you have someone else help you with
0: this? <laughs> That's what my wife says all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Pete, you are like the uh, the Max Fisher of publishing because you are. Well, first, you're um, managing editor of, of Rabbit Room. You're executive director, right? Which means you run the show. And I, I'll have you explain this. You're you're an author. You're a playwright. You do. You've read audiobooks. Yeah. What am I missing here? You've done like,
0: I am event planner and coordinator uh, for Hutchmoot. Yes. Um, I don't know what else. Uh, I'm also, as far as Rabbit Room Press goes, I'm usually the uh, designer, typesetter, editor, copy copy editor. (laughs) Um, I mean, I farm out a lot of that stuff now, but I've I've still got my hands in it all the way to production. Um, Acquisitions editor.
1: At Uh, this point, is the only thing you don't do actually cater the events?
0: (laughs) I do not cater the events, no. Yeah, there's a lot that i don't do we've got a staff like it, it is true that i don't know we probably need to go back and actually tell the story of the rabbit room so everybody knows mm-hmm. yeah going yeah uh you want me to go ahead and do that yeah please. go for it please well so about i guess it's been 16 years ago like i was living in florida back then and my brother who's andrew peterson who's a singer songwriter and children's author and you know everybody in nashville loves andrew <laughs> uh He was was off on tour in England and stumbled into the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford, where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien used to, you know, hang out on like Tuesday nights with the Inklings and talk stories. And he came home from that trip really inspired about the idea that these great authors that we loved had not only been colleagues, but had been, you know, uh, I don't want to say drinking buddies, but I mean, it's kind of what they were, you know, they met down at the pub every week. and they had a pint and they smoked their pipes and they talked about what they were working on and they encouraged one another. And thanks to that developing friendship and the people that they gathered around them, like the world now has the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia and in and, and uh, Charles Williams books and Dorothy Sayers, like all of those people were connected. And so that really fired him up. And he kind of, uh, I think he called me one night and he's like, Hey, so I think we should do this thing called like a rabbit room. And uh, you know, it can be like a coffee house on the corner with a bookstore in it and like We'll have shows there and we'll write books and it'll just be amazing. Um, But pretty quickly, we realized we had no money. (laughs) And so we started a blog instead, Um, which is, you know, lame on one hand, but on the other hand, it was was brilliant because, you know, Andrew was much more interconnected than I was in those days. And he just reached out to a whole bunch of artists and writers and pastors and musicians that kind of had the same literary DNA and said, hey, let's all get on this blog and just let's just write together and let iron sharpen iron and have fun together and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we did. And you know, it started as a private blog that only we had access to. And somebody just found it the other day and pointed out that the first rabbit room post was about beer, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was, I thought was funny, but uh, the Southern Baptists won't like that at all, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right um but anyway so it grew it just took on a life of its own from there and you know we ended up inviting more and more people in um the blog went public and then soon followed with a a music store because so many of our friends were selling music that wasn't getting into stores uh back then and we're like well hey let's just you know we're all here talking and interacting with people let's sell this stuff as well and then that turned into books And, you know, I guess five years after that, people started saying, you guys should do a conference. So the Hutch Moot Conference started, which Mm -hmm. if you haven't heard that word before, that is a a combination of a hutch, which is where rabbits live, and a moot, Mm M-O-O-T, which is an old English word for a meeting of free people. Uh, So that started here in Nashville and was a big success. And we just did our 10th one this past year, yeah, or I guess two years ago now. So the rabbit room has just been this constantly evolving organization that in 2016 reincorporated as a nonprofit and has just proceeded to kind of explode in a lot of ways. Mm. So, um, Andrew, his career is full with his touring and his writing. And, uh, I quit the job that I was working at the time and eventually moved to Nashville Mm -hmm. to really be the guy that was peddling the bike at the rabbit room, you know, to keep it headed uphill. And I've been doing that ever since. So, you know, there's a very real sense in which six years ago, I was doing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm since we, especially since we've reincorporated as nonprofit, um, we've been blessed enough that we've got a staff of six or seven people. And it seems mm-hmm. like every six months we're adding somebody new. Oh, my gosh. And it seems like every six months we're adding something new yeah um or someone new uh, so it's a really it's a vibrant exciting place to work for the most part and a complicated place to work because we're always having to figure out some new problem but yeah i guess that goes for any organization
2: yeah so let's go back to you uh in the smoking section on a uh, uh they're not it's a, I mean it a helicopter carrier what do you call it? amphibious assault right carrier yeah, no,
0: what do you call those things they were um shoot it's been too long i just there. think of like the uss I, like the kitty hawk that I was, on, I was on was the wasp, the in wasp. The Pacific, and it was one of those that has like the open end it's an aircraft carrier that partially sinks itself uh-huh. so float um you know land craft yeah. out of the back of it yeah
2: yeah 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 so what's going on in your head in terms of what you're going to do with your life then <laughs> and here you are now i mean okay. did you ever think
0: well this is a funny story so when i was 19 I was just a knuckleheaded kid that just hated everybody and everything as, I mean, I didn't like my parents, didn't like the church. I just wanted nothing to do with any of it. Uh, and the first Gulf War started. And then, you know, I remember sitting in the living room and watching the TV as the bombs started dropping and uh, everybody else is in horror. And my first thought was, wow, this is gonna be fun. And which reveals me for the idiot that I was when I was a child, right? Like I'm not, I'm not saying that because it was the right way that you should react. But Aaron, Aaron's right. a
2: Canadian; he doesn't understand. So, <laughs> all right, he. he.
0: <laughs> well, I went the next day and joined the Marine Corps because I just thought, you know, if there's going to be a war, I want to be there. I want, I want to bring home the stories. Hmm. And so, the irony of that is, I don't know if you remember, but the Gulf War lasted about 30 days. But mm-hmm. so by the time I was out of boot camp, it was all over. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. And I had signed up for six years. So I had six years of service in essentially peacetime, which is a great blessing in hindsight. Um, I did, there was the Bosnian uh, Civil War Mm -hmm. and we operated aircraft off of the coast over there in the Adriatic Sea. So I was involved in that, but I was never in danger really. Yeah. Um, So yeah, so that was my headspace going into the Marine Corps. And then it didn't take a whole, I, I don't know, I enjoyed it for the first couple of years and then pretty quickly realized it, it wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I think I was a person driven by accomplishment. I liked to do things yeah. and I liked to be able to follow those things where they went. Yeah. And the Marine Corps is a situation, or the military in general is a situation, which it essentially doesn't matter how good you are at what you do uh, or how driven you are, you're not going anywhere any faster than anybody else. You know, it's just, uh, it's very mechanical. And so I couldn't wait to get out. And so by the time my my service was up, I I was ready to get back to school, go to film school, learn how to make movies and tell stories. Um, And I'd been a, you know, I'd written stories for my whole life. So, you know, there was always the idea that I would be telling stories in some way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by the time I got out of the Marine Corps, I was pretty sure that was movies. Uh, and then, I, you know, I did some school in film school and stuff and, you know, eventually came to the conclusion that I wasn't cut out for that either. It was just too big was because I didn't want to make little independent films. I wanted to make Star Wars. Yeah. you know, and, and like once I saw how long that trajectory was, I was like, I just don't know if I'm ready to do that. Mm. And so I fumbled around for a while until I ended up uh, working on my first novel. And then that led directly into the rabbit room and, you know. Mm all the storytelling that that's uh, brought me, which has been just unbelievably lucky for me (laughs) because I don't deserve Mm -hmm. any of it.
2: Oh, sure. Um, back to the Eagle and child for a second. I I have been there. It's been almost 20 years ago now. And, uh, you know, certainly had that same feeling, um, not the courage to do what you guys have done, but I, uh, but I was with one of my friends, my German friends and, uh, (laughs) And I don't know what is fascinating. He had to go to the bathroom and and while he's there. And he, so he decides to go up to the uh, bartender and in his German accent, he's like, uh, Do you know where uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis went to the bathroom? Which urinal? You know? <laughs> it's like, I just want to know so I can, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's my terrible German accent, but uh, but it was. We were all dying laughing because, like, of all the questions, that's yeah, what that's he's amazing. got. No other trivia or anything. That was it. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. I don't
2: know.
0: did he find it? Uh, I I think so. The, I mean, of course, the
2: bartender's like, I don't know, man.
0: <laughs> no, like, yeah, the bartenders there. I've gotten to be so tired of those. Places. Oh, yeah, yeah. They don't care at all.
2: Yeah, I know. And and that was right before, well, it was either right when Lord of the Rings fellowship came out. So if I'm thinking 20 years ago, right? Um, but uh yeah, so it was, you know, it's certainly more interest. There were always Lewis fans who were uh crazy evangelicals, right? But um, but you know, but you know, T- tolkien star has risen in the past 20 years, certainly. So um but yeah, it just was amusing. But I, I again, going back to what you shared about just the reason why with Andrew coming back and that spirit of art is meant to be shared, right? And I want tell tell us a little bit more about the purpose again of of what you're trying to do with Rabbit Room.
0: Well, uh, I mean, the the idea is that you know art art nourishes community, community nourishes art. Yeah, um, like creating some, the creation of something isn't finished until it's been given away and experienced by somebody else. And then ideally like that somebody else and their response to it is uh, food for the person who created it as well. Um, so there's just this symbiotic sense of like, you know, the people who partake of art and people who create art and they're not, they're not necessarily the different people, you know, because in the context of a community uh you know well i just a very small community like my brother and myself you know anything that i write i send to him you know and he reacts to it anything that he writes he sends to me and i react to it uh mm-hmm. and that's one of the ways in which we become better writers you know and i think mm-hmm. that's what we're ultimately in, interested in is like who can we draw in here that uh we can have fun with fun being a key word there mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately end up doing what we want to do and doing it really well. Mm-hmm. So that was the goal. Um, but it's interesting. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, there are a lot of organizations that try to put artists together and uh, a lot of critique kind of groups and things out there. Uh, but one of the things that I feel like is just missing from a lot of that is the, the key concept of real friendship and fun.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so we try to always remember that. Like I tell my staff all the time, like if, if we're going to do something, if we're going to take on a project, we need to make sure that it's fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, yes, it has to be mission oriented. Yes, it has to be meeting the goals. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, it has to be financially viable. But mm-hmm. like, let's not put all the blood, sweat and in tears into this unless it's going to be fun, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and I think that's been one of the hallmarks of the Rabbit Room's sort of brand with its events and its, uh, its books. Like we try to always remember that, like, it should be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. which isn't to say that it has to be light you know? yeah 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 absolutely
2: i uh you're right you know that you can't force something to happen um the moment you do that you're right it's purpose kind of gets uh, muddied i would say right. i mean certainly some good things can happen when you say let's get together but
1: sure.
2: But yeah, you have to kind of keep it a little bit loose in a way so people can enjoy it at the same time. So
0: I feel like even if you're doing, like even if the the end goal is not something that's fun, like maybe you're, I don't know, rebuilding Haiti, which is not necessarily a fun task. Like the people that you work with in order to accomplish it, it should be a, you know, I think it should be a relationship that, that feeds you. Mm-hmm. And that the thing that feeds you is generally laughter and fun mm-hmm. between people, you know? Yeah. Well, I will say this one thing I have loved.
2: And again, I encourage all listeners, if you don't know Rabbit Room, it's uh, it's rabbitroom.com or org? Dot always... .com. com. And it's, uh, uh, I mean, the resources are tremendous. You've got podcasts, you write articles. Um, from the book's perspective, and I want to dig in there too, is... You're publishing books under rabbit room press you're also selling and recommending all these other books in other words you're also saying there's great art out there we want to continue to point people to that i remember being it i mean of course we all we're, we're all book people here we love going into a bookstore every time i go to hutchmoot there's this custom selection of books um that i'm exposed to and it's not overwhelming but it's very intentional of what you guys have done. And I loved it. And whether it's a, a Steinbeck book or Graham Greene's power and the glory, or so I'm trying to think of some, I purchased there that I was like, oh, I always wanted to buy. Or I thought about it. And I thought, Huh, Robert rooms recommended this. I wonder why. And yeah. it's kind of nudged me to dig a little bit deeper, but, um, but even for my kids too. I mean, you know, I visited this, you know, you uh, your. you uh, your warehouse in progress at the time. Now that's which I want to hear more about that too. But I also just realized that there's just a lot that goes into this too. It's not just staff. It's a community of people that help figure out, okay, what is something that's recommended? So tell us about like that process. How do you,
0: well, you know, I think that like with the books and music that we not only publish, but sell, because we have an online store, uh, that sells not only our books, but anybody's books. Like, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why we're a nonprofit. Like, we're not here to make money, you know? Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, I want our books to sell, yes, but my primary goal is to get great work out in the world, no matter yeah. who published it. Yeah. Um, so one of the ways I think we define our DNA as an organization is through, you know, what we curate for people. And so the mm-hmm. books that you see on those tables are books that, you know, if you pull the lens back and look at them all at once, should communicate the, the heart of the rabbit room. You know, the mm-hmm. way that we appreciate stories, the way that we connect with the gospel, you know, uh, these stories are models of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so you can have everything from science fiction to, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, theology. Yeah, it, it all belongs. And it, it's in the mixture of it that that something is defined, I think.
2: Yeah. Break that down a little bit more. So you're saying about books that reflect the gospel, but maybe aren't as straightforward. I'm kind of inserting a little bit, but yeah, tell us
0: more about that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting. The The rabbit room is, we're, we're not taking people to Sunday school, huh. you know, so we love Jesus. <laughs> we want to lead people and point people toward Jesus, but our ways of doing that are through stories, and, and art, you know, um, and and it, it, and it's often in ways that don't necessarily look obvious, you know. Like we published a book um, earlier. I guess it was about this time last year by Helena Sorensen called "The Door on Half Bald Hill," mm-hmm. and Helena brought me the book. She's been in our community for a long time. She's been writing novels for a long time. She brought me the book and basically said, I don't know who would publish this if the rabbit room doesn't. And I read it and I immediately saw what she meant. Like it's a very, it's the kind of book that is, it's a, it's a it takes place in like ancient, like Celtic Ireland, I guess. Like it's not very well-defined. It's kind of a fantasy novel that takes place sort of in our world in the ancient past, but it's got Druids in it and you know, it's kind of this really dark book that, that you can imagine no Christian publisher is gonna know where to put. But at the same time, you get to the end of this book and you can't get away from the fact that it's about the gospel. Um, and not in a analogy way, not in a C.S. Lewis kind of Narnia, Aslan is Jesus way, but like in a more Lord of the Rings sort of the way, you know? Mm-hmm. and uh, And I guess that's our DNA. Like mm-hmm. we want to get at the heart of things without looking directly at it most of the time, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, you know we do have artists like that. You know, John Hendricks is part of our you know rabbit room community. has won multiple awards for his uh, uh, books, and uh, you know he writes uh, the Miracle Man, which is a picture book about the life of Jesus, and it's amazing. So you know yeah. we don't exclude that, but um, we just want to make sure that people are aware that there is more than one way to like. if you there are more. There's more than one way to look at the the diamond that is the gospel. It has so many facets, you know. Uh, and and I think in the Christian world, you know, some people are overexposed to one way of looking at it, at the expense of all the other vibrant colors that are available. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, most definitely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, how do you evaluate in terms of what else to uh, develop or um, you know write yourself? Really, I want to put you in that too because you've written books for Rabbit Room and what's your process there?
0: Well, I feel we're pretty organic. Um, Like I often tell people that we're less interested in publishing books than we are publishing authors. Mm -hmm. And you know what I mean by that is like uh, even if the best, even if the next you know Great Gatsby came across my desk. Uh, I would say no to it unless I knew and trusted the person who, who wrote it. Yeah. You know, so like, I want to develop relationships with people in my community and in the wider community of the world, even that are people I trust, people who, who uh, have the same kind of DNA, you know, that the rabbit room does mm-hmm. and then help their stories be realized, even if their best story, or even if their first story isn't necessarily the best one that I think they can write. Mm-hmm. Like, want to do want to build that you know that's what really interests me um, in publishing Mm -hmm. did you um you know what was it what was the first book you published my first one was uh the fiddler's gun fiddler's gun yeah and that was also the first book that rabbit room press published Yeah. yeah um it was interesting like you know i'd shopped the book around um for several years and kind of consistently got the same sort of feedback like um this is not christian enough for us or this is too christian enough for us you know
1: Uh
0: and then there was also like well you know we like the themes but you got a couple cuss words in there and i'm like of course i do it's about pirates (laughs) (laughs) it's a gritty book you know it doesn't it needed some of that and and then i had people saying well you know it's kind of a boy's book because it's an adventure but it's got a girl protagonist. Mm-hmm. So boys aren't going to read it, but girls aren't going to read it because girls don't want to read a book about pirates. And I'm just like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Like like kids, people will read a story if it's good. Anyway, yes. like there are all kinds of great good reasons. Why, and I understand now that I am a publisher, why those decisions were there. You know, so I'm not mad at them anymore. Yeah. But all that was going on at the same time that Andrew and I were kicking around these ideas of like, what if we had our own press? And then we just ultimately decided, like, let's try it with this book and see what happens. Yeah. So it was a, you know, you could look at that through the lens of self-publishing, but I really don't see it that way. Like it was our test bed for mm-hmm. like, you know, let's get the editor involved, let's get an illustrator and a designer and all these people involved mm-hmm. and really figure out how to do this. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was successful.
2: Mm -hmm. So one thing I've always admired about you all is your ability to have a long tail perspective of of books, you know, you're not looking for the big flash. Uh, And, and you know, I mean, Aaron and I, we worked to Publish for a long time too. Like there's so much pressure to launch well. And certainly as a literary agent, I advise authors. That's a good thing to build mm-hmm. as a way to build an audience. But um, I know you've had to evolve over time too, as you've matured as a publisher too. But, um, but, but how do you look at it from a long tail perspective in terms of building an audience?
0: Um, that's a good question. It's been, it was, it's been really informative to have begun our retail business selling music. That was the first thing that we sold. And then we got into books later. And uh, it's interesting that in music, when an album comes out, it's got a few months and then it's gone. I mean, yeah, it's, it does have a tail you know but it it, it's the the drop off is enormous yeah so it was it was really interesting to start with music like that and then get into books and realize that that does not apply to books yeah like uh books have a long ramp up and then a longer ramp down yeah which is a really interesting thing so like Mm -hmm. when when we put out a new book you know if it doesn't get a lot of attention in the first couple of months i'm like that's okay like it takes a lot longer to read a book than it does to listen to a record. Mm -hmm. You know, when people fall in love with a book, they fall in love with it long-term, you know? They tell people about it for years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's been really encouraging Mm -hmm. to me because I think if if I'd gotten into books first, it would have just been demoralizing. But having that comparative was really interesting. So, you know, I approach it, you know, pretty, I don't know what the right word is. Like, I guess I'm just confident that if we continue to put out good stories that I believe the world needs and that the world will still need in 10 or 20 or 30 years, mm-hmm. then I think that those books will hopefully have a chance of still being there in 10 or 20, or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that's the way we look at it. So um, I'm less concerned about what everything everybody wants right now than what I think the world needs in 50 or 100 years. Because that's I, that should be your goal, right? Like mm-hmm. you could publish the next um, Hunger Games,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which might be a big hit, you know, for the next decade. But I would rather publish the next Lord of the Rings, which is going to be a hit for the next several generations. Yeah, you know? century. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: for sure. Which doesn't mean we accomplish that, but I think it should be your goal. Yeah. So
2: in other words, the content has to outlive you.
0: Yeah, ideally. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Which also, I think, just feel like it kind of changes the way you write. You know, yeah. once you want to go back and study, like, how did Dickens do this? How did mm-hmm. Hugo and, and uh, you know, Tolstoy, like, what did they do? Yeah. That causes them to still be here and still yeah. be relevant.
2: It's a great way of looking at it because we're constantly, uh, or I should say, hopefully, consistently exposed to more let's call them for lack of a better term, dead authors, whose books continue to impact people hundreds of years later in some instances. And I wonder, like, do these authors, like, could they have ever imagined in yeah. 2021, people are reading their books? You yeah. know, if you are a Dickens, right? if you are a Tolstoy,
0: and so on. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too. Like, I think it would be presumptuous as an author to, to write as if you were going to be still read in 100 years, uh-huh. but I think that the right way to come at that is to just be cognizant of the fact that writing is mining for something that is deeply true about the world, about humans, about God, and you know if a writer manages to strike his axe into that, you know, into that deep true piece of ore then it will be around for a long time. So, you know, keep writing books and hopefully, hopefully eventually you, you hit the mother load. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that has gotta be, you know, for any author who's wondering, boy, what difference is this going to make? I've written this thing and I feel like, is it really going to have that impact? I mean, it's uh it's hard you know because you're right you never know there's so many good stories about how books suddenly find an audience years later that it's a good it's a good thing to encourage them with it also is just freeing just realizing like you can't control this the way you want to I mean there are things you can do principles of getting people to experience the book but um, go back into like just how the book happens in the first place too like do you are you, as a publisher, do you set a very specific timetable of, if it's a novel saying it's got to be this time and we have to release this time, or do you let the process flow and keep it a little more flexible? I know you have to budget too, so.
0: <laughs> it's both, you know, I mean, we set our schedule and then it always goes out the window, <laughs> as is usually the case with most publishers, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, it, the, the the more we do this and, and the, the, the bigger we get, you know, the better I try to do it. And so I do try to adhere to those kind of, you know, baits and things in development, but I'm not going to do that at the expense of, you know, the the worth of the book. So a great example is we publish a, a book called Every Moment Holy, which is a book by Douglas Kane McKelvey, uh, of Prayers for Everyday Moments. Mm-hmm. And it's been really successful for us. And uh, after we published the first one and it went really well, he went to work on volume two, which is subtitled, uh, death, grief, and hope. So it's a book about seasons of dying and, uh, ways of thinking about death and caregiving and, uh, pain and all these kind of things. And then the second part is, uh, for seasons of grieving. So after the event of death, how do we deal with that in our lives? Mm-hmm. And it is a profound and beautiful book. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it it was supposed to be out this time last year, I think. And Doug, just uh, the author, just had a hard time writing it, partly because he was in conversation with multiple people who were in the process of death or in the process of dealing with deep grief to try to make sure that we were hitting the right tones with these prayers. And, uh, you know, I kept hammering him like, dude. Like you are past deadline. We have got to get this thing out. The world needs it right now. Let's go, you know, and it it wasn't forthcoming. And, you know, ultimately I just had to remind myself, like the deadline is not what matters if we have this hundred year vision of books, you know, like what we need to do is let this book take the time that it takes so that we can create the thing that God wants us to put into the world. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he will take care of the rest, you know, and I really believe that. And so that book was way late. It got pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But I'm so glad that it did because it would have been a travesty to have released that book and realized we had hurt somebody because we had struck the wrong tone with a liturgy for the loss of a child. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's both. You serve Mm -hmm. the work. You don't serve the deadline.
1: That's a really good approach and, um, very counterintuitive to just about, um, just about everyone in the universe. (laughs) So I'm, I'm glad you've got, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're taking that, uh, that approach. mm -hmm. And I mean, there's always exceptions to the, to that, of course. So I realized that was a little bit of a blanket statement, but, um, yeah. Well,
0: it's one of the blessings of being a small Agile organization, you know, because we can let things slide if we need to, and the world doesn't revolve around that.
1: And yeah. it's also
0: one of the blessings of being a diversified organization. Like we are not just a publisher, yeah. so if the book that we were going to do this year slips to next year, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, I will say this to you: and uh, every moment holy, um, um, on top of, of course, the content being beautiful, amazing impactful uh, those, those aren't good enough adjectives but it, the packaging is amazing um, um I, I think part of having a book like that you recognize that it needs this special feel to it that's going to last beyond someone's own life i can tell you have that perspective that's a book to be handed down yeah
0: um
2: which by the way is counterintuitive to the way publishers think <laughs> it's no they need to keep <laughs> buying more copies <laughs> and so which is a nice byproduct, but it uh, looks great on the shelf. It looks great on the table. Um, it's accessible. Well, credit
0: for that goes to uh, the illustrator who also did all the design work on that book, uh, Ned Bustard.
2: Uh, yes, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's it's been a blessing to our family. I can tell you that. So, yeah, I remember when you released it, and I think you were at the pub you, you know, that was part of the trade-off or whatever that was. That's right. And I was like, what is this thing? (laughs) Oh, liturgy. All right. (laughs) I bought a couple of copies then not really knowing exactly what I was getting myself into, but I thought this is really cool. Um, Yeah, no, I, I I love that. Um, A lot of people don't know, like, you know, Andrew, uh, a lot of people think he's, I mean, the core fan base knows Wingfeather, saga has been out for a while but what a lot of people don't know is kind of the story right and uh, uh, you know it's just the fact that you know first two books were published by uh, by Waterbrook you know Penguin Random House and uh, took a while to build an audience right Um,
0: yeah yeah the first uh, so Andrew's first book on the edge of the dark sea of darkness Mm -hmm. came out in 2009 Mm -hmm. same year that we published my first book actually uh, and it was with Waterbrook Press, which is a Christian publisher, and then I think they were kind of dipping their toe into the fiction and fantasy and children's yeah. thing and weren't sure how it was going to go, and so uh, that book came out, and then the second one came out, and then they didn't want to publish the third one. I think they just wanted out of that kind of corner of the, the book market, and uh, so thankfully, we had published my two books in the meantime and now knew somewhat what we were doing yeah and so after andrew was done wringing his hands over like they've dropped me and what am i going to do now it was like well let's just get busy like we can do this ourselves and so we actually kickstarted the third book and it was enormous uh like it went better than i think most kickstarters ever go back in 2010 or whatever it was yeah and uh so that was you know a great opportunity for us to sharpen our claws a little more and figure out more about how to do the publishing thing and it went really well Mm -hmm. and then we followed that up you know a couple years later with the fourth book in the series as well as i guess we also did wing feather Tales, which is an anthology and we did the creaturepedia which is a like a a bestiary Mm -hmm. um so we did all that it was a lot of fun and it went really well and andrew just you know because we were the publisher at that point. It worked really well for him. You know, we sent the books out with his, him on tour all the time yeah. and they slowly built their audience. And yeah. then like the, the really satisfying end to that story is, you know, 10 years on random house came back and bought them from us you know, <laughs> and because they're bestsellers now they're just doing mm-hmm. great. And uh, I yeah. think I'm allowed to say this, there's a TV show in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. Animated te- television show that yeah, it was about to go into production so yeah. anyway yeah, yeah it was a great experience that and that, if i'm fair there's a little bit of me that's a, a little uh sore that that we, we we gave the books up you know now that it's really popular yeah but it's totally the right thing to do like random house has a much better ability to get those in front of a bigger audience yeah you know and we spent you know 10 years getting them out to 250 300 people and yeah. hopefully now random house can get it out to 3 million people yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I see them. Um, I always just get the a great big smile on my face when I see those at uh, places like Barnes and Noble yeah. and you know all the you know all the mass market kind of stores. Um, yeah. Just because I know what's in there and it's and it's such good stuff for yeah. every age of reader. Um, yeah. By the way, it, um, I, I thought I'd just share. Uh, I just ordered your uh your two books um as uh, as and as part of my eldest's birthday uh oh. presents so um so thank you how on old? her behalf <laughs>
0: oh how old is she
1: uh she'll be 14 on the oh, 18th perfect. of march so yeah.
0: well i hope she loves them
1: oh i have no doubt that she will she she has she is determined that already that she knows what her her career is going to be and she is going to be an author she wants to write and that's all she wants to do and i love it Mm -hmm. so i'm just trying to expose her to as much good writing as i can and uh so i'm glad you get to be a part of that
0: yeah Uh, i'm thankful for everybody that reads (laughs) um but that the wing feather thing is just a great example of the way that books have this long on-ramp and a long off-ramp you know it literally took a decade mm-hmm. for those books to spin up you know and it's because they're great books and, and and
2: pete i don't know if you knew this i told christy this uh but uh you know it's, uh, uh, dark sea of darkness is uh required reading in my girl's school
0: oh really that's awesome yeah
2: it's 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 the summer reading you know leading into seventh yeah. grade isn't
0: that funny that is awesome. I, I know.
2: That. Yeah, <laughs> I told this to Chrissy. I said, "You won't believe this." I said, "I just bought copies before," and uh, I said, "It's
0: yeah." I mean, it's funny because both Andrew and I are writers, and, and my pen name is A.S. Peterson. I don't, I don't go by Pete Peterson as an author. It's A.S. Peterson for reasons that don't even matter. But uh, the, the people make wild leaps sometimes. So, so we, I'll hear from parents who have just read Andrew's entire series to their children. And then they have thought, well, his brother writes, let's do that one next. And so then I get an angry letter from this parent who's reading this dark, violent, gritty pirate story to their eight-year-old and is mad at me. Because, <laughs> and I'm like, why are you mad at me? Like, <laughs> Just because my brother writes children's books doesn't mean I do. Like, who told you yeah. that? It's yeah. so funny the way people think. But um, yeah, that happens more often than, than I like to admit. And it causes Andrew some stress sometimes too. Because people write him angry letters thinking that he is a yes Peterson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's great. Yeah. Well,
2: what else is, uh, what's up and coming uh, for uh, Rabbit Room or you personally next?
0: well we are just getting every moment holy volume 2 off the ground um, and having our kind of sales meetings and stuff about that uh, we just made the call to cancel hutchmoot 2021 because of the covid stuff and instead to switch to doing a hutchmoot homebound which is the digital version of that uh, conference which we did last year and that's actually a really interesting story so hutchmoot has been a uh, it's just been enormously popular. So we started it in 2010 with hundred people, uh, and every year since then it's sold out in less than five minutes. Uh, and so it was pretty quick that we grew to 150, 180, and then we changed venues and we, we keep it at 300 guests now because we really value the, uh, intimacy of the, of the weekend. Like, you know, if you get much bigger than that, you, you feel like you're in a mega church. Uh, and, and we don't want to do that. We want everybody to feel like you have a chance of shaking everybody's hand this weekend. Um, so we keep it at 300 people and, the, you know, it always sells out. It's always a lot of fun. Everybody loves it. But because of that, people get angry. They're like, I wanted to come to Hutchmoot for 10 years and I can never get a ticket because they sell out in five minutes. And I'm sorry, you know, but that's just uh, it, in order to keep to the, to our vision for the conference, like we don't have another way of managing that. Because yeah. we don't have the energy to do it twice in a year. Yeah. Uh, so last year, because of COVID, we, we had to cancel it, which we were really sad about. And we thought, well, let's transition to a digital conference. And it was kind of, we made the decision with a groan, because nobody wanted to do that. It sounded awful. Part of what's so fun about Hutchmood is its intimacy and its in personness and the meals you eat together. Uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an incarnational thing. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of doing that over a screen just felt miserable. Mm -hmm. Um, But we said, we're going to do it. And we said, let's have fun. Let's figure it out. And I think we pulled it off. Like it was a lot of fun. And we, we spent a lot of time thinking about how do we get people off of their computers this weekend? Like, yes, we know that the conference is on the computer, but how do we get people off of the computer? Yeah. And so, you know, we sent people recipes and ingredients and encouraged them to cook for one another during the conference and provided time for that. We, we constructed like scavenger hunt kind of things to get people outside to like go do things and then come back to the computer and tell people about them. Yeah. And we we bu- tried to build in a lot of interactivity like that. And it worked really well for the most part. And uh, we, the crazy thing is that after 10 years of having... 100 to 300 people per year come. This year we had nearly 10,000 people come, which means that there were more people at that hutchmoot than at all other hutchmoots combined. Yeah, which is remarkable. Uh-huh. Uh, so when we made the decision again this year, it, we didn't have the groan. We were like, okay, we do, we're going to do this again. We're going to have fun with it again. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And so we're in the middle of planning that and figuring out what it looks like. You know lessons learned from last year, what did we improve, that kind of stuff. So that's what's taken up most of our time. And then I guess, well, yeah, <laughs> the place I'm sitting right now is another thing we haven't even talked about. The Rabbit Room existed online for so many years, and one of the things we talk about a lot, we're big Wendell Berry fans, yeah. and like we really recognize the importance of where you are in the world, the place around you, and the physicality yeah. of the world. And, and so it was kind of ironic for a decade that... We were primarily an online organization that kept driving home the importance of real place and real interaction. So, one of the first things that we did when we incorporated as a nonprofit was to come up with a fundraising plan and a, you know, just a vision for a place. Hmm. So we uh, we owned a an old 150-year-old farmhouse at the time that was falling apart. Uh, and we have, we basically, we've spent the last three to four years, uh, tearing that down and rebuilding it as something that we call Northwind Manor, which is an event space, a workspace, uh, a place that as soon as this pandemic is over, we are really excited about hosting lectures and Bible studies and concerts and all kinds of things. It's just a beautiful facility, a beautiful building. Um, you know, we saved pieces of the old building to build into the new one. Yeah. Artists contribute stained glass and paintings, and you know all sorts of stuff. We actually have J.R.R. Tolkien's fireplace in mm-hmm. our library <laughs> uh, from his house in Oxford. So it's a beautiful place. And uh, you know, one of the blessings of the pandemic, I think, is that once we completed the building, uh, we can't really have public events right now, which gives us the the blessing and leisure of being able to slowly grow into what we want it to be as opposed to, well, here's your certificate of occupancy. Like, what are we doing next week? You know? So that's been really nice to kind of grow into it slowly.
2: I appreciate that what you've done, it's, it's building, it's building things, it's building ideas, but it still points to intimacy you're trying to create for, um, for people to come together and in community because the temptation when you grow is to say bigger, you know, and by bigger meaning, yeah, we need to fit more people in the room. We need to do this and that. And it's a natural thing with growth. You want, you know, you got people who want to get in um, and you want to be accommodating, but the experience changes when you do that. And you have to make that decision. What do you really want to be? And so you've created things that kind of say, Hey, we are growing but we also aren't changing from our core philosophy, uh, which I love.
0: Um, I also feel like our mission is not, um, like our mission statement is we uh, foster Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. But like it, it's it's telling that our, our mission is not necessarily uh, the creation of the community. Yeah. The creation of the community is the outworking of the mission. So like our mission is the creation of music story and art. And our belief is that if we continue creating music story and art and buildings and do it well, then the result of that will be community. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So I think that, that shift of focus is really important because we can get lost in thinking, oh, how do we create community? And you know, if you start thinking about it from that angle, I think it takes on a completely different connotation yeah. When our real focus needs to be on how do we create great art, music, and stories. Yeah. Because if we do that, the community will take care of itself. That's yeah. my point. Yeah. Absolutely. Man.
2: Wow. Well, I, I, it's been fun. I've no. I've really enjoyed getting to know you better through the years, and you've always been helpful to me. I know there's been things from like this to Pub U and so on. You've been helpful because I think like i said there's this temptation get bigger get bigger when you're saying no embrace what you can do within community it's this other thing that happens is you know the church movements it's it's yeah. the it you know we went from the 90s and early 2000s of build these big mega churches When everyone's saying no we need more intimacy mm-hmm. we've lost that and the, so even if you have a large church it's community groups small groups you know really get people in people's homes not just come to the physical church right and you're doing you know you're leading from that perspective which i appreciate and um we're
0: trying. yeah well figuring it out every day
2: yeah i mean uh yeah even when we talked last week just me <laughs> getting your input on the things we're trying to do publishing on my end it's you're right it doesn't matter what size big small organization like we're all trying and uh um, I, uh, just, I hope you have, you, I, I reached out in the spirit of community. I'm like, what, is, I bet Pete's tried some of these things. What, how would he approach this? Am I going in the right there are very direction?
0: There things I haven't tried.
2: <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> right. I'm big on that. I try and find people. I'm like, all right, I, I know I'm going to make mistakes. Can I keep them fairly minimal? Um, and, uh, can I learn from others in that? No, I uh I've i appreciated that in in, in spirit of that, that community. Well I appreciate
0: you too, Dave. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm trying. Um no well I it's yeah, this has been fun. Thanks for yeah, coming yeah. And doing this. Thanks for asking uh, Yeah. So tell we always kinda of ask this question, what uh, what are you reading right now? Outside Ooh. of or it could be work related, but uh but if and not that's personal.
0: The, that's the funny thing about working in publishing, right? Your your ability to read for fun diminishes yeah. it. Right which is both a blessing and a curse you know because i work on books that i love otherwise Mm -hmm. i wouldn't be working on them yeah Uh, but uh the thing that i am reading completely outside of work right now is eugene peterson's christ plays in Ten Thousand places and man i love it it's so good i can't believe it's I, i have waited this long to read it
1: yeah nice yeah nice that's very cool very cool dave what about you Oh man.
2: Well, uh, we, uh, it, yeah, Pete, by the time this airs, we will, the previous episode would have been, uh, uh, Lynn anger. We had him on last uh, technically yesterday, <laughs> but I'm mm. recording, but yes, yeah, sorry for our listeners. Uh, it was a previous episode. Uh, so we finished American gospel
0: from that time um you know i would I, love to meet him sometime i love his brother so much and yeah
2: you you would enjoy mm-hmm. him equally um we we just uh i'll yeah, send you that live. episode when it's live it, he yeah. was fascinating you would have, i know you've appreciated life you would like lynn for different reasons do finish the high divide because i know you said yeah. you uh hadn't yet it's uh it's wonderful aaron and mm-hmm. i loved it um you know so i i yeah to me that's it's great i'm um uh, um uh, I'm I'm going back on on ba- on Frederick Bachman's book. so I'm finally going back to the uh, man called Ove. Um, oh, good. Yeah, finally. I, I mean, since I know Aaron and I were talking the other day, I I read Bear Town a few years ago, and I'm I'm watching the HBO series on it. I, they've done a really good. The series is great, by the way. Oh, I've really only watched the first two episodes, but very faithful to the the novel. And yeah, uh, yeah so great writer. I I, I started listening to Bachman, I was listening to the audiobook actually. Um, um because I was thinking about Lynn Anger and like, you get these Nor- Norwegian Swedish guys, they have a different way of looking at the world. And, yeah. uh, there's a lot of similarities, uh, not that they're writing on the exact same genres, but still, uh, their characters are tremendous. So That's there you go. Yeah. Aaron, what about you?
1: Um, well, I am, uh, continuing my nerdy comfort reading with um superman volume two from the 1980s uh so uh i went back and i got the the john byrne reinvention of superman from 86 in these great big uh hardcover collections so those are fun um and then just plugging away through uh through gentle and lowly
0: I don't know what that is. What is
1: that? Uh, it's a book by Dane Ortland. And so basically the idea is, is, is really to, uh, the, the conceit of the book is, is what is, what is Jesus heart for mm-hmm. people? Mm-hmm. And so it's really rooted in that call, the, the, the statement that he, that he, that he made, um, uh, where he, where he said, you know, come to me all who are weary and, and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Um, for for I am gentle <laughs> or my burden is 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 our kind and all this stuff and I'm butchering things because my memory's shot today so Jesus um, loves you anywhere that's right that's right <laughs> so
2: this is, not a, this is not a bible commentary podcast so uh, no that's okay. my other podcast
1: and I can't oh, okay mess up sorry there. that's right
2: oh that's why you're employed otherwise okay I couldn't remember
1: <laughs> sorry all right. Don't screw that one up. No, no, no. This is a safe place. This is this is a safe place. Just books. Yeah. Just books. yeah. That, that's, okay. right, that's right. That's right. So well. well thanks well, again, Pete. Yeah, yeah. Pete. You're thank welcome. you for for joining us. Um, and uh, I just enjoyed listening to everything you guys were saying. Uh, so that's why I didn't talk very much. Um, but uh, I look forward to sending you an angry email about why I can't get in hutchboot in the in the future. <laughs> And uh, To, to A.S. Peterson.
2: A.S. Peterson. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I look forward to an angry email from you as a parent about your daughter's reading.
1: Nice. Well, I mean, uh, there's a there's a story I can share after after we're done recording that I can't uh, share while on air, but uh, <laughs> that'll make you laugh. So yeah, Dave, thanks for for setting this up and leading the way on this conversation and. Um, listeners you know what to do five star ratings and reviews all around do get Pete's books get uh, all the things from rabbit room and do look for info on touch move homebound as well so uh, we'll talk to you later